0: Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 65, Art and Film with Dr. Cutter Calloway. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On today's episode, we're discussing art and film with Dr. Cutter Calloway, who is Associate Professor of Theology and Culture and the Co-Director of Real Spirituality at Fuller Seminary. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Brandon Hurlburt, Chris Song, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. On this episode with Dr. Cutter Calloway, we're going to be talking about the Best Picture nominees of 2021, which will be awarded at the 93rd Academy Awards Ceremony. Naturally, given that we are speaking about these films quite openly, we need to give a spoiler alert up front, but we talked about a number of other things. What stood out to the two of you about this conversation that we had with Dr. Calloway?
1: I think one of the the things that sticks out to me from that conversation we just had was Cutter's quote of art traffics in empathy. And I, I just thought that is an amazing way to put it of just thinking about film, thinking about art and how, if it doesn't encourage us to change, if it doesn't encourage us to identify with somebody other than ourselves, even if it's just for, you know, the hour and a half, two hours that the film is, um, I think we're missing out on what film is trying to do and, wh- and how we
2: can, uh, as Christians, respond to it. So I really appreciated what uh, Cutter was saying. You know, going along with the idea of empathy, um, you know, Cutter's talking about worlds that movies can create and that we have the choice to inhabit. And that's, um, that's true of almost, yeah, I think it's, I, th- I think it's true of any movie, um, I think it's particularly and poignantly true of the movies that are up for for best Picture this year we We have a world that we are asked to be a part of and to to step inside sometimes quite quite physically and in in a, in a very embodied way step inside, like in movies like Sound of Metal or the father um, to to really see what uh, hearing loss might be like, or what dementia might be like, not just uh, as a third person, but as as a first person subjective eye. And uh, so, some of these movies are are doing that really well. Um, other movies are creating a horizon of the world and asking us to to maybe explore with them. You know what we think. How how would we respond to? particular picture of the world or the way the world might be set up? And do we see the world the same way? And uh, so this idea of movies creating worlds, I think is, is a really important one. It's a good exercise. As a Christian, um, the Bible creates a world, um, quite literally, and um, we're, we're constantly invited to inhabit it and to be a part of it.
0: What I love about ending our series on art and culture with a discussion on film is that if you think about it, film is kind of like the most collaborative art project, right? In order for a film to be a best picture, it's really got to sort of fire on all cylinders, right? The acting's got to be there, the directing, the cinematography, the writing, the the music, the score, the sound design. I mean, everything's got to be good. And given that collaborative nature, what, what I find so interesting about this conversation about empathy and this kind of ethic of viewership that Dr. Calloway talks about as our broadens this notion that film is a collaborative uh, project to include us as the viewer and, and invites us to kind of live out that empathy that we have learned in the process of watching a film in the worlds that we inhabit as well. And so with that, here is our conversation with Dr. Calloway.
3: Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Calloway. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's uh, fun to talk about films with people that care about movies.
0: So before we get into the best pictures, how about we begin by just sort of asking, why should Christians be interested in these films at all? You know, I think for many, there's kind of this idea that, you know, film is perhaps just mindless entertainment, right? It's nothing to really be terribly concerned with, to dig deeply into. One of the things that I remember growing up is is how films were, were treated in such a reductionistic way. For example, whenever I wanted to go see a film, right, one of my friend's parents would always have to consult the the Plugged In magazine, right? And and what you you find in in Plugged In is this is kind of weird, reductive itemization of all of the violent content, the language, you know, the nudity, right? It's like, you know, in this film, there are three decapitations, right? And, you know, X number of of swear words. And it's just like this really weird uh, sort of approach to film. Film, right, that that sort of flattens it all out. I'm wondering if you could sort of uh, chart a, a better way forward for us for for how we ought to think about films and not reducing it to this kind of content.
3: Sure, um, I mean at the core of it, um, my approach to just culture in general, uh, art, let's say the arts, um, and we would include cinema in that. And there's a range, right? Not all movies maybe qualify as like art. Um, they are, but you know, uh, some of them are kind of silly and really are mindless, right? Uh, so it would be uh, an analogous to to a People magazine or whatever, like an in-flight magazine, where you go, you consume it, you don't think about it ever again. Um, and, and actually, I think there's a sense in which some of that's okay. Like there's, th- sometimes Christians uh, put a lot of burden on themselves that everything we do has to be very sober and serious. Um, and there's actually a um, my phd mentor, and then now it's kind of recurring in the in the field of of sports and athletics. but this sort of notion of a theology of play um, is something that I think we need to to reclaim and go there's there's actually a great deal of good, just mental health outcomes, but then also a, a, a theology of going, um, it's good for us to delight in the things that God has made and that we make. Um, and that's fine. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that now if it like borders on like crass and you know, whatever, then maybe we can talk about that. But that's now moving more into that sort of content question that you you raised. And a lot of times I, and the way I teach in class and talk about it is uh, one of the reasons we might uh, engage these films, watch these kind of films or any film, any kind of storytelling narrative medium right now um, is a way for helping us discern between uh, content and meaning right so so there may be a, a decapitation <laughs> um but it it's not like decapitation equals bad um it's the question is well what's the context what's the narrative context why did that happen what what's going on was was it gratuitous or not did it did it help tell a sincere story that reflects the human condition um there were let's say decapitations in the world <laughs> Uh, If you're telling a story about that, to avoid it is actually to tell a dishonest story. And so um, part of, as as we think through what does it mean to engage these films or any film, um, that's one of the uh, things that we can practice is how do we come to a place where we go, um, I may not approve of this content. um, However, the larger meaning of the story is something that could be helpful, um, could be theologically rich. And so for me, I'll say um, both for my own personal practice and then in my teaching and writing, um, there's kind of two, well, there's multiple approaches, but two ways you go about this. One is to say art of any kind, especially great art, um, art that really is tapping into the sort of universal human longings that we all have, um, can really be spiritually enriching. Um, for anyone, but specifically for the Christian. And so uh, you can go into a film asking the question of how might this film shed new light or crack open my faith uh, in ways that might otherwise not be possible. Um, And that's really just kind of like a a personal or communal, like spiritual uh, experience. The other side is, is the missional uh, question. And that is, movies, uh, and depending upon which movie, this this isn't always the case, but film, movies, media are the stories that are shaping the imaginations of contemporary persons, just full stop. Um, 50, 75, 100 years ago, let's say in the North American uh, context, um, we had a sh- a shared narrative that was probably the Bible, right? Like you could say, what's something that everybody knows? on the whole, do they know about Moses or Jesus or whatever? And it's, you know, that doesn't mean everyone was, were Christians, but they knew this sort of common text. That's not the case anymore. Um, Instead, the the common narratives that we all share are films. Um, A stat that I always share uh, is, uh, I think just it's mind blowing, but Finding Nemo, um, I believe came out in 2006 or seven. This is pre streaming services, anything like that. But Finding Nemo, in the first year of its release, 60% of the American population had seen that movie. That's not just kids. That's all people in America. What other text is there? What other uh, art form or artifact, uh, book, or anything can we name that 60% of the United States population has seen? So if you are a person that cares at all about engaging in conversations with people that aren't a part of your community um, and you want some place to start and you want to say like how can i gain some insight into the way that people imagine the world the way that they uh, shape their sort of uh, understanding of each other film is just a low hanging fruit uh, that we can go to and go hey this this has sort of captured the zeitgeist of right now and that gives me insight into my fellow human being and possibly a bridge to engage in meaningful conversations with them so um, oh so it's funny you bring up plugged in uh, this gets to the content thing um cuz i've long Loved film, and it may be because I was raised in the context where, it, you know, similar to what you're describing, it was treated with extreme skepticism and suspicion. Right, <laughs> um, at best, it could be mindlessly entertaining, but at worst, you know, it's it's dragging you into the pits of hell. Um, usually by you know showing some form of nudity or something. That was you know, that was definitely the the worst offender. Interestingly, violence was less a big deal. Right, like gratuitous violence. Meh, um but you know you show a nipple and you know all bets are off well um i think i was 16 or 17 probably 17 uh maybe like a senior in high school and you know i i've been showing some signs of independence my parents were letting me kind of you know uh, be go beyond the nest if you will and so they're great parents love them to death uh but um, but they were not uh uh fans of uh, contemporary film and so I remember going to see, I don't even know what movie it was, some movie in the theaters, um, came home late that Friday night, let's say. And then it's Saturday morning um, and I'm, I'm there. I kind of come up to the kitchen and my mom's like, oh, what'd you do? And I go, oh, last night. And I said, oh, we me and some friends went and saw X movie, whatever it was. And she's like, really? And so she goes to uh, I, the plugged in. It may not have been exactly plugged in. It it's one of those books, just like the, the content stuff. Um, and she, she opens it up and she's like, oh, and she's looking at all the things, right. You know, language, nudity, violence. And she's like, cutter, um, here's what's in this. Do you think, uh, that this is honoring to God, uh, what you're watching? And I look at it and I go, or she's like, are you hardening your heart? This was the language she always used. And I, I looked at it and, and sure enough, there in one of the lines, it's like nudity, you know, uh, one hour, 10 minutes in. And it, you know, just has the like N for nudity, right? And then you have to go down and look at the description. And I'm like, oh, wow. I don't remember any nudity in this movie. And I'm like, maybe my mom's right. I, I've become calloused and hard-hearted. I, I don't even remember these things. I'm so used to it. And I was like, mom, I honestly do not remember nudity in this film at all. And so like, I, I started kind of following down where it is. Sure enough, signaled N for nudity. Um, one hour, 13 minutes in full upper male nudity (laughs) and I said what and so I took it and I literally throw the thing across the room and I said this is what's wrong with all you know all this stuff um and I've never let her live that down um but 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 it is the as you said um the reductive approach now is it helpful for I'm now a parent of young kids is something that helpful when I go uh, uh, Raya and the lost dragon, the new uh, Disney uh, movie or, or Mulan, the live action Mulan, right. i um, really wanted, or our girls are really going to watch. And I'm like, actually, before we see that, let me, let me see what's going on. Why is it rated PG 13? Um, so there's actually, there's some helpfulness to that, but to reduce the whole thing to nothing but that sort of uh, content is to essentially uh, treat, this piece of art as something that's not art, um, and and that's one of the major flaws of that.
1: I remember one time when I was uh, I just turned eighteen, and for my birthday I was you know with a friend and my parents came along and we were going to go see a film, and I had other friends who were older who were like, oh, this film it's really great, like you know there's nothing really bad in it at all. It, it's it's fine. It's just it's a fun, it's a comedy. It's fun, you know. So I, was, I told my parents I really want to go see it. Birthday, you know. And I was like, "Oh, I think it's rated like, oh, it's kind of rated R." Like, but you know, these people who are a bit older, I respect them. They they said it's fine, and so we went to this film and we saw the other guys.
3: Oh, and (laughs) (laughs) Will Will Ferrell, Mark Wahlberg, hilarious. But my parents walked out halfway through. (laughs) Oh man. Oh, well, a kind of complimentary story to that, Um, you know, I gave my parents a hard time of all that, but once we were going to do a family movie night, and I got to pick, you know, at Blockbuster, and I had seen, I think, um, Airplane 2 on, like, TBS, right? So, like, it's highly edited, you know, of content, whatever, and so we're in Blockbuster, I'm like, oh, I just saw Airplane 2, it was really funny, here's Airplane 1, I've never seen it. And I'm like, mom, dad, what, could we watch this? And, and they're like, uh, I don't know. And I'm, look, I'm like, look, it's rated PG. So I, I don't think there's anything in it. And it sure, it was rated PG. Well, back then, the ratings were, there were only basically two ratings. It was like PG and X, basically, were, were it in 1979. And so <laughs> we put it on. And sure enough, in like the first five minutes of that, they have this bit where everyone's walking through the the scanners and all the women, it just shows them topless. And so it was like, topless woman after topless woman coming in I'm like ah trying to like fight, scramble for the remote to turn it off so it you know sometimes <laughs> uh it 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 bites you but uh but yeah that that that's a good one other the other guys that is not a family friendly flick right there
1: yeah so as we were talking about the oscar uh best picture nominations kind of maybe a quick speed round to uh get our kind of switch conversation a bit um so i was going to ask you three questions and just give us the first Film that comes to mind, and hopefully we can this can get our conversation going. First of all, uh, which film surprised you? Uh, Mank. All right, Mank is the film that surprised you. Okay. Uh, Which film did you like, but you don't think it'll win?
3: Uh, uh, Minari. All right.
1: Okay, and then third, uh, which film do you hope doesn't win?
3: Oh. That's a tough one because I don't want to wish ill on anyone, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, well, oh man, that's that is hard. Uh, what's,
1: what's the la la land of this Oscar
3: nominee? Well, uh, maybe, maybe I can say Nomad Land. Um, But I don't actually hope it doesn't win. I just, uh, it, it, I, you'll be bummed. I don't know, I don't know what to make of it. I don't know what to make of it. So,
0: yeah, that's interesting. I mean, surely it's the front runner.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Or at least that's, that's the
2: scuttlebutt. What uh, surprised you about Mank? And so I know that was speed round, but we've
3: got to at least kind of go there. And I have this theory. It's probably not a theory. It's probably just true. uh, That Hollywood really likes itself. Um, (laughs) And it likes to, to see stories about itself and it often the the oscar best picture nominees are just riddled with stories about hollywood or you know um you know the artist uh right but that was the 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 black and white film from or the silent film quote unquote um uh once upon a time in hollywood from last year you know like you get all these things where it's a kind of either a romanticization of Hollywood or uh, a look into it. And so I was, I was skeptical, I think, of Hank going in, going like, well, this is just another example from what I know of what it's about, just another example of Hollywood being in love with itself and <laughs> right. exploring right. Citizen Kane, you know, so forth and so on. Um, but darn it, if I didn't really like it, <laughs> like I walked away, like right. I think uh, of all of the, the best pictures, enjoying it um, the most. Uh, just as a film, right? And as as a story. And um, so that's why I think it surprised me because I went in expecting one thing and it actually kind of won me over. Uh, uh, Minari, I really enjoyed too, but I expected and anticipated that I would in part because I know the filmmakers, um, we have a relationship with them and so I'm rooting for it. And so it's different. I enjoyed both of those, but but Mank really did surprise me uh, in that way. And it also, uh, I learned some stuff too um about the backstory i haven't looked into how accurate or how even how much we know exactly um but uh, i was i i really enjoyed that now i got to go back and of course watch citizen kane again um and i haven't been able to do that since we watched the show so that's that's the main reason why it surprised me
2: you mentioned uh, the artist as a movie that of hollywood loving hollywood and um it won best picture and uh, it doesn't really hold up. I remember seeing it again recently and thinking, wow, this wasn't that great of a film. But, you know, it's just an example of Hollywood loving Hollywood. I think that uh, if Mank was out maybe 10 years ago, I mean, it would, it would be sort of a shoe-in for a Best mm-hmm. Picture. It's just the kind of film that, that wins, wins an Oscar. But I just think we're in a different time. Yeah. Um, yeah,
3: what do you, what do you yeah. all make of that? Because um, I do think, of all all of the the, the uh, movies that are up this year, obviously they are in a very unique context. <laughs> right, so right. it'd be interesting for us to think through, like which ones would have been nominated at any time, and which ones are have have been given this because of the fact that everyone has been in a pandemic, <laughs> uh, yeah. watching these at home alone. And I just I've been thinking through that a lot of what's the uniqueness of this year in particular in terms of the best picture nominees.
0: Yeah, when I think about the films of this year and think about how suited they are for our present moment, I think about Trial of Chicago Seven and Judas and the Black Messiah and how well those films fit into our current racial reckoning. When I think about Promising a Woman, I think about, of course, the Me Too movement. Um, but I, I really feel like Nomad Land is sort of particularly suited to uh, the time of COVID, right? I feel like the the displacement uh, that Frances McDormand's character feels is really really sort of uh, akin to a lot of the disorientation that a lot of us feel during COVID you know, there's kind of this dystopian quality to Nomadland, you know, due in part to this kind of Amazonification of all things. And I think that's also something that we can resonate with quite well.
3: I was also thinking um, with Minari and uh, there's another one that maybe it's Nomadland as well. Oh, uh, I totally forgot. Sound of uh, metal that, they're really like quiet movies. Um, sure. and they're, and they're not, they're not assuming uh, much, uh, they, they, I, and, and I, I wonder, especially with Minari, I, I go, I think two things had to happen for it to be up one, um, parasite, uh, happens. And so that opens mm-hmm. a certain possibility that didn't exist before, but then two, just, um, the, the, it's so, um, intimate and uh small if you will in the best sense of the term um that i i just wonder if you know if it's the normal slate of films and um uh that (laughs) that aren't unassuming uh that if that would get on because it's such a to me i'm looking at it and i'm going this is a blatantly christian movie um and Mm. explicitly so And it's getting, I mean, like people are saying it's it should be nominated. You know, uh, it's an honor to be nominated. um, And that's part of why I want want it to win. And I just wonder if any other year would it have gotten the kind of uh, affirmation that it's getting? Um, And that's the one that I and again, it may be because I'm I'm connected to it differently than the others. um, But that is the other surprising one to me uh, that it's even in consideration, although I love it. Yeah, uh, Chris and Grace on, on this podcast as well. We actually all
1: watched uh, Minari together, but, but we we watched it right after um, the Atlanta shootings, right after we recorded mm-hmm. the podcast on the Atlanta shootings. Um, and so I, I feel like it was that yeah. hit differently watching mm-hmm. that film after mm-hmm. that, after those events. <laughs> I, I thought it was really, uh, I thought I didn't know much about the film. So I didn't. I knew it wasn't going to be like *Parasite*, mm-hmm. but I thought it would be <laughs> a bit more—not action, but like there'd be a bit more to it. Yeah. And it was very. It was quiet, and it was yeah. it was peaceful, and it was feel good. It made me miss my grandma. My grandma's not Korean, but I maybe miss her anyways. Um, but yeah, I, I I really enjoyed the film, even though I have I feel like it left it left yeah. it left with a cliffhanger that wasn't a cliffhanger it was resolved yeah. but it felt peaceful but there was a future
3: yeah there's it's open. it's like it's sincere without being sentimental uh in, in that way like yes. it, it it was believable i mean like and you go wait and that's the kind of stuff that usually doesn't get nominated for best picture right um it's usually the nomad lands which um i had sort of like the inverse experience of that one to what you're describing with minari is that i i I think it's exactly the, what you're describing um in terms of the zeitgeist um it feels very amazon taking over the world we're sort of displaced and 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 wandering as, as you know uh, homeless but I I want to say where it left the viewer in terms of her character just made me very sad I, I, it it seemed almost a sort of a kind of despairing nihilism I wonder if you guys can help me reclaim it i don't want it to be that but it seemed like there was a in in that film you've got a uh, a a group of people that are committed to a way of life that's sort of doing the kind of countercultural um rejection of capitalism and all of the trappings of that and these this is a community right that that wants to live in community with others that opens up and, and demonstrates hospitality to her um her own family does and at the same time you know there's that that horrible scene of them talking about real estate you know and like that's terrible but her sister you know uh, invites her in and and i couldn't help but think that um her decision to be sort of disconnected from the land and from others was really a reflection of the trauma that she encountered um by losing her community her family her house her husband all that stuff it it wasn't so much a, a re- an ideological rejection of the Amazonification of life, right? And so by the end, she goes through and sees these other options and kind of rejects them all, and then mm-hmm. she's back in the place that she lost. And so it's like that her desire to have a home and to not be a nomad haunts everything that she does. And by the time we get to the back, I don't, I don't know what the resolution is, and it seems like it's a non-resolution. In that same way they're just describing with Minari, but it, it left me like just despairing. Um, And maybe that was the whole point. Uh, That could be the whole point of the filmmaker, but that's what I left that movie with.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I, th- I think I uh, kind of had a, a much more hopeful interpretation of Nomadland. You know, there's something kind of uh, akin to the Odyssey, where there's kind of this story about returning home. Of course, she's returning to, you know, something more of a skeleton, right? It's a house. It's not really her home. And one of the things that I, I think is really important about that scene is that earlier on, you know, she talked about how there was this wonderful expanse behind her home and kind of this generative idea of how expansive the space was. And I kind of, I kind of had this sense that w- when she drives beyond it at the end of the film, I, I got this idea that she was moving on, that she had returned home, but then, but, but then she moved on from that uh given that it was no longer her home. And so I, I guess maybe I'm just being a little bit too optimistic, but that's kind of how I understood it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some of this might, um, uh, segue into the,
2: th- the, the thematic discussion yeah. that we wanted to have. But I mean, it's a great place to bring it up. And it's just this idea of closure and justice, if you will, in, it, that weaves through a lot of these movies. Mm-hmm. So, Nomad Land, I'm with Cutter here. I don't even know if it's a quote more than it is common wisdom, but the sentence that kept running through my head as I watched Nomad Land is uh, the world leaves you before you leave the world. Um, whether or not you think that's true or not, I thought that that was very true yeah. of Francis McCormick's character yeah. that um, she had, she had a world that she lost and she was not going to re-engage the world, you know, whether it's with her sister who clearly loves her or this other relationship from, you know, with the guy in sneakers that I like a lot. I can't remember his name, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but that, you know, and, you know what what was powerful to me with Francis McDermott's character is that i I know this person in different part you know different mm-hmm. aspects of my life yeah. um, not just folks in the homeless community um but uh folks who who um who I do know and I've had relationships with this in in my past, and no matter what I or a group of folks or the churches around would try to do to maybe help these people get back on their feet, they just they just won't accept Mm -hmm. it. They, they, and they, you know, they, they prefer to be, you know, the, the movie uses the term wandering. A movie like this actually gives me categories to help understand, you know, that Mm -hmm. maybe there's just, there's this sort of wall that you're not going to break through her character seems like a wall, like no matter what Mm -hmm. advice you give, it just kind of, she just kind of has the same blank expression of thanks for saying that.
3: And, um, I I do Um, wonder they don't bring it up if if I'm recalling right it doesn't they don't address it directly but there as you're describing I wondered too if if there are some like mental health things going on you don't you don't want to like project that on and and, and say it if it's not clear but um, just some of her expressions some of the way she responded to things um, and I and you know a number of people uh, both direct and indirect uh, who have like family members who have seemingly chosen homelessness or wandering. Um, also struggle with some mental health issues that that make it very difficult to engage. And so I. that's another where I go, this is very timely and powerful because all of that is in play. And even if it's not, you know, you don't have some diagnosable, let's say schizophrenia or something, to suffer the losses she suffered obviously would right. have, um, have traumatized you in certain ways that would incapacitate you, I think. Um, and maybe that's one of the, uh, the law or the, Well, I was so sad, uh, maybe what you're describing too, because I go, I don't know, as an individual, as a family, as a member of a religious uh, community, I don't know what resources we have at our disposal to reclaim those people back into community, Mm. to to help them. And it seems that our sort of social safety net continues to fray in ways that um, I think will only give rise to more of, of this kind of story.
2: So connecting that theme with some of the other films that um, are up for are for up for Best Picture, um, you know, one that immediately comes to mind is Promising Young Women. Yeah, where you have Carrie Mulligan's uh-huh. character Cassie. You know, there's constant moments where both me as a viewer and characters in the movie are saying, "You've got to move on. Like you've got you've got to not be so obsessed with in her case with revenge." This idea of avenging um, a, a very unjust and traumatic death of her friend, um, and you get the sense for her that there's just no coming. There's no. There's no coming back from that trauma, mm-hmm. and, um, and 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 mm-hmm. in her character, um, I you know, it de- It definitely explores this idea of not just justice, but the possibility of closure. And I think that in some ways that movie is just as bleak, or maybe <laughs> ambiguously hopeful um, about the possibility of, of, you know, the horizon. And I mean, it's important because of, you know, as Christians, we have a horizon of justice, and um, we have a way of looking at the world that that tries to put um, these things in, in in the context of a larger way of looking at uh, of of the righting of wrongs and the possibility of closure. Um, I think Nomadland, Promising Young Women are examples that sort of sort of explore the malaise of that kind of, you know, a, a, the possibility of that kind of closure. Whereas the other, other side of that are movies like Minari that we talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, Sound of Metal, too, is this idea of, you know, experiencing a, a very keen and powerful loss and exploring what acceptance and closure might mean um in, in response to that, I'm sure that there's a lot of other examples, but thematically these, this is one of the big ones that i'm seeing
3: uh, yeah, I think to each one there's some form of of injustice i I'm trying to think through with uh, sound of metal if that's the same thing, but there there are inequities uh mm-hmm. maybe I, I mean even in the way that he pursues um uh you know getting the uh the implants uh that that he's it obviously <laughs> doesn't have the the finances or resources to do that so he, you know makes certain decisions based on on those um that might be a little bit of a reach but other but the others i think um you know you have a whether it's promising young women or uh nomadland or 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 minari or uh judas and the black uh, messiah all of these are people that um, are encountering a a system that uh doesn't treat them equitably (laughs) Mm. um you know like the that scene in promising a woman that that uh she goes to the dean and the dean's like well well what we're just if we take all of the all of the threats seriously or all of the accusations seriously what would that do to all these young boys lives and livelihood and and (laughs) clearly siding with the with the oppressor and the powerful and i thought that's like encapsulates all of those. Uh, then you could go to uh, uh, the, the Trial of Chicago 7. And what's really interesting about, and I need to follow up on this a little bit more. I was reading some stuff on the, the actual history. What, what Sorkin did, he made some changes that I find perplexing. Uh, one is, and I can't remember the character, well, the actual person's name, who was the head of the Black Panther Party that was brought in. Fred Hampton? Uh, it's Fred Hampton. Fred Hampton. Oh, Fred but apparently Hampton. He, was, he was gagged for three consecutive days during that trial, oh, Bobby Seale. Oh, Bobby was Seale. that Bobby Seale, yeah. um, the one that was actually on, you know, on in the trial. Bro- yeah. on trial, yeah, yeah, Bobby um, Seale. And and I'm like, whoa, that you know, in the in the narrative, he sort of just it, it happens quickly, and then they all go, oh wait, mistrial, and you know, they've done well, apparently he was there for three days. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the other guy that ends up punching, he's he's the pacifist uh, who has the son, and he punches the the bailiff. Apparently, did not punch anyone. And uh, again, I need to follow up. So this is, this is Google searching, not researching. <laughs> um, <laughs> apparently uh, one of the uh, officers in the the courtroom uh, uh, assaulted his son uh, physically, and yet he didn't respond violently. So, uh, so some of those things are really interesting. Um, we don't have to talk about them, but, but what they get at is um, all of these systems that are set up to privilege certain folks at the expense of others in these radical sort of inequities. And you see the fallout from that um, and you see it both societally just in our country right now, period. But then in all these films, again, this is back to the, why do these capture people's imaginations? It's because they're giving voice to some sense in which the game is rigged um, and it's rigged to the advantage of uh, very specific groups of people um, and disadvantaging others, and if we now, and this is even back to Hollywood being guilty, you know, the B two movement started in Hollywood, um, uh, Oscar So Black, <clears throat> you know, it is guilty of reinforcing a lot of that system, but now you get this shift where you have different voices, different filmmakers telling different stories, um, and it's no small wonder that they're all kind of running up against um, these, these injustices and the traumas that we've inherited um, uh, from them. So you have both the historical side of it and the contemporary one um, telling a very similar story that I find really interesting um, in the way that those connect. I do I bet, I, One thing I, I just want to say about Promising Young Women, though, I also think it's a really problematic film. And I actually reached out to um, a couple of friends, both of whom are women of color. And I said, this is very Tarantino-esque um, in terms of a yes. sort of like revenge fantasy. Um, and I go, OK, but what what's wrong? What's happening here? And I, I couldn't quite figure it out. And then I said, I think there's something about her being a white woman that allows her character to do certain things that and this gets to your closure uh, Point Chris that at the end the 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 redemption or whatever that she kind of realizes that gives that sort of catharsis to the audience like aha the guy's got it in the end I was like well wait a minute it's only for a white woman that the police and the sound of police sirens is uh, a victory mm. and also those dudes have been getting off scot-free from people in authority their entire life What's to make us think that any, it's going to be different now? Right. And so I think at the very end, I had this weird uh, question about the racial dynamics of that movie in particular. However, yeah, yeah. being a white male, a white cisgendered male, I don't, I'm like, I, I, I'm very hesitant to then like critique it on those grounds because I also think the film itself is very important and what it's doing and what it's forcing us to, to look at and stare at. Um, as an audience, so I don't want to be overly uh, critical on that, but that was one uh, sort of like, huh, asterisk at the end, and so uh, it, it, yeah, I, I think we can follow up on that with some others. <laughs> I thought so. I, I
1: really, uh, I unfortunately watched the trailer mm. before, I, and, and I rarely do that. I just didn't know anything. I didn't know what it was about, so I wanted to watch the trailer, and then I was like, ah, dang it, kind of ruined a bit of the of the fun. But I was surprised that the the like kind of the fun part of the reveal that like oh wait she's not she's been learning i thought this was going to be a very different film and obviously there's gonna there's there's a lot of tie-ins with with kill bill Mm -hmm. uh with tarantino and then kind of the revenge fantasy um there's like a harley quinn kind of Uh you know um homage or something and i thought there was a really good part, uh, Chris. To your point about justice and redemption, I thought there was a really good part where the person that you know somewhat saves the day in that film is the lawyer who mm. repents. And there's like a very interesting, you know, it's kind of like a Carrie Mulligan's character is portrayed mm-hmm. like it, it, like an angel, and she like mm-hmm. forgives him, and and the the mm-hmm. lawyer like who had represented uh, the the bad rapist dude. Mm-hmm. Um, earlier you know repents feels guilty remorse and then like is kneeling before her mm-hmm. asking for forgiveness and you're like wow that's mm-hmm. that's great mm-hmm. um and he ends up you know saving the saving the day yeah. getting the guys in trouble but i felt that the ending was problematic in one sense because i mean she dies and mm-hmm. the the rape the, the the rapist <laughs> kills her and suffocates her. And it's it's almost like a George Floyd almost yep. instance where it's like- I mean, like, that's oh. gotta
3: be like a four minute scene or something. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah it's um, hard to watch. Mm-hmm. It is. I, it's very hard to watch. And you think the whole time that something good is gonna happen and it doesn't.
3: Yeah. Um, and I, you know, so I, I'm of two minds here, right? I mean, like I um, do, I I think there's a very intentional reason that the horror of that violence- um, played out at that length <clears throat> because cinema too often goes through violence without like forcing the audience to deal with the actual repercussions of what it's like to yeah. suffocate a human to death. Um, and it's just like, oh, quick 10 seconds and then we move on. Oh, they're dead. It's like, well, no, do you realize what it takes to do that? Yeah. Um, at the same time, uh, I go, we have this character. Um, do we do we need this story? Is that necessary to get the story that that the film is trying to be? Right? Um, is that worth the the price, <laughs> well, if if you will? So I yeah, yeah go ahead.
1: Yeah, I was going to say there there's also the other uh, Tarantino uh, bit where she's going to carve her name. Yes. Yeah. Uh, on his skip, just like in Inglorious Bastards, where they would oh yeah carve the swastika you know, give you give you something you can't take off. Right. Yeah. Um, But I wonder I wonder if there is a very intentional like part of the film was that that's not how life works is that revenge fantasies are only a fantasy and that's not how the real world works. Yeah. But the the very ending, I think, as you said, I think that is a a really good point is that the cops show up and you think that's victory. But in reality,
3: it's not. Yeah. That rarely is and for her i mean what i think one of the best uh wh- what i would call christian ver- re- revenge depictions in cine- recent cinema is the coen's true grit mm. um and and you and this is again a a a female uh uh protagonist who has a a justifiable reason to enact vengeance right she was wronged her perpetrator was wrong and and no one would, would do it for her. Right. So similar parallel. And, and it becomes clear in that film, the consequences of basically, uh, enacting your own vengeance. Uh, now someone else had asked me about this, this film or others, like what would be a good, um, if you're troubled by promising young women, which again, I think it's, uh, important to watch. Um, I just, again, these are the, the troubling questions with it. Um, But they said, what would be like a good revenge movie that that would be more consonant with sort of a Christian approach to this? And I go, I don't think it's possible that that, that's that's the antithesis uh, of the Christian narrative. Um, And that's where I go um, to both points. Like, it's good that it's good, quote unquote, that's not the right language. Um, It's important that she dies in the process of this. Um, but I don't think at that level, that was like what the filmmaker was trying to get at, that this is sort of the consequences, even even like you become a victim of your own seeking a vengeance. I don't think that's yeah. where she was going.
0: Right. Um, and
3: so that's where it just got a little convoluted uh, to me in terms of what what we were trying to do there at the end.
0: Yeah, you also kind of get this idea that she's a martyr for the cause, right? I mean, when we see her lying on the bed after she had died, her arms are sort of spread out in a kind of crucifix posture and you you almost kind of get this kind of imitatio christi sort of dynamic to that scene, you know. Yeah, yeah. Brandon had mentioned, you know, the 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 angelic imagery uh, of the film that she's almost kind of this guardian angel. And I think, you know, this sort of these religious images are kind of working together. She's like part guardian angel maybe this kind of like again kind of like martyr like quality to her as well
3: kind yeah. of superhero in some senses too yeah. i mean like the, yeah. the you said harley quinn uh, just her costume at the end um, she she sort of all the time is wearing this kind of facade or or co- costume right like an actual costume to go out and perform she, again she she's every woman yeah she's every woman um, and she experiences uh, trauma in her past. And it, at by day, she's a coffee shop uh, barista, and by night, she's seeking vengeance on those who are acting unjustly. I mean, like, so there's even, yeah, whether it's a Christological thing or a superhero type thing, I think that's definitely in play. So, yeah, I th- I, I, that's why I say, I think the filmmaker wants it to be a, a, a more redemptive than maybe it, it ended up being, um, in, in my take.
2: Well, it's actually, um, to that point, it's like, we're, we've already given all the spoilers in the movie <laughs> about what happened. But um, the, the original ending of the movie, the way it was written, was it ends at the burial. And, ah. and there's no, there's no, like, sneaky texts and all of that that comes out at the end. And so mm. it was certainly supposed really? to be. Um, yeah, you can go. You can go look that up. That was that was an original ending of the film. Yeah,
0: that reminds me of the original ending of Get Out, which which I think, of course, is is just much more uh, powerful. Really, I I almost wish the theatrical release would have ended that way. I think it makes its point much more strongly.
3: Oh, um, wait, of Get Out or of, of Promising Young Woman? Of
0: Get Out. Yeah, of Get Out. Having not known about this alternate ending for a Promising Young Woman, I mean, I'm I'm curious. I mean, it seems like that would also uh, hammer the point home uh, much more strongly, kind of like the original ending of Get Out would have. Gosh.
2: Well, it would. It, it, it would. And I think that they want you to know that that's how they wanted to end it. And of course, you know, how, you know the studios are saying, no, you're not going to end it like <laughs> that. I mean, do you guys, I thought you were going to say the ending of Dodgeball. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> the ending of Dodgeball was supposed to end with the little Jim losing and Ben Stiller's Jim winning. And they're like, no. And the director actually quit over that ending. And so, but you said Get Out, which is the right, Which is the right analogy. uh... (laughs) I wanted to circle that back to Minati because, you know, losing that crop and, you know, risking everything that they had at the end to see that go in flames. Like, you know, you could you could not recover from that as well. Mm -hmm. Like there is something where that is like that is sort of an identity crushing moment um, for for him, uh, for Steven Yun's character and for that entire family. You know, like it's only two minutes from that moment on, where the movie kind of, kind of, you know, reaches it. It hurries to its end. You know, and, and so in some ways, you know, people talk about the ending of Minati as as is that ambiguous. Does that go either way? Um, and uh, there's certainly a gesture of quiet acceptance that um, that we're going to we're going to try this again, and we're going to try it again mm-hmm. as a family. Um, the silence of it. So I'm, I'm Korean American. Um, and um, this movie really hit me in a certain way because I, I you know, I grew up in ch- suburban Chicago, not Arkansas, but there were so many moments in this movie that reminded me of my childhood, like my grandma watching wrestling, like <laughs> that's a weird thing, but that actually, that, that mm-hmm. actually happened with my grandma. Um, like certain crazy moments, just it's amazing to see on film. But um, the not explaining how things end, you know, you know, they had the big, the husband and wife had this big blow up, um, but then they're together in the end when they're, um, you know, they're replanting a well. This idea of things being done and not spoken and not discussed, that's very, that's actually very Korean. It might be, in, <laughs> that might be in other cultures as well. That might translate very well, but that ending seemed to, to me, to be very true to my own experience of how things uh, moved on and how things um, progressed as a family, uh, things mm-hmm. weren't really explained; mm-hmm. <laughs> they weren't <laughs> talked out, but they were still they were still experienced together. But um, it's a different response to loss. It's a different response um, to to trauma or a conflict mm-hmm. um, than a movie like Promising Young
3: Woman or yeah. or Nomadland might be offering. I'm I'm with you, and I. Um, I mean, everyone that is Korean American that I know that watch this describes it similarly to you. Um, And that's why I think the interesting thing about this film is, although it's ostensibly about uh, a first generation immigrant couple that comes and their kids and whatnot. I think it's 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 all filtered through the lens of the young boy who it's, it's his story, essentially, or maybe him and his sister. And so it's, it's actually not, um, a Korean immigrant movie. It's an Asian American movie. Like mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a very American movie, uh, told from that perspective of what, what do you recall about having the grandmother, what, you know, these sort of things. Um, and so, uh, that, but again, that's me as sort of an outsider observing people describe it that way. Um, and then the other side though, of where I, I, I then connect with it is, um, it's, it's again, explicit sort of Christian uh, ethos. It's not just because, oh, it it's, has sort of this overlay of Christianity that that makes me want to endorse it over, say, Promising Unlimited or Nomadland. But it is the, um, I guess, the, the prescription or the hope uh, that, it, that it offers or kind of opens up. And again, it's not, a, um, it's not like some radical thing. It's a, we're going to go dig the well again right it's a it's a um i i watched this documentary a couple of years ago called biggest little farm and it's actually about um some folks that started a a sustainable farm and and it's actually a regenerative farm it's not just sustainable it's regenerative uh, out just north of LA here um in this land that was just totally barren and they kind of revived it um but i went out on on to their farm and visited it as part of like the pr for the movie and and talked to the to uh, the farmer's husband and wife uh, he's actually a documentary filmmaker. She is like a gourmet chef. So they're like, you know, uh, living off the land and all this stuff, you know, just uh, very sort of Wendell Berry ish. Um, but it was interesting because I I had my daughter um, ask, like, hey, give me a couple questions because she's interested in farming to ask the farmer. So I asked them, uh, you know, how do you tell the difference between a weed and a plant? Um, I'm like, oh, good question. I'll ask that. So I asked it. And so uh, one of them, either I think John and Molly were the names, said, ah, oh, well, there really is no such thing as a weed. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And, he, and he's like, well, a weed's just a plant that's growing in a place uh, that the farmer doesn't want it to grow. Um, and it's a name we give to those things. Uh, but what a, what a weed is, is actually an invitation to a deeper form of relationality with the land. It's an indicator that something is uh, uh, amiss. And, and I'm like, oh. That's a that's that's mind blowing, right? As a non-farmer, I'm like, this is crazy, and that's what I see in Minari of going the sort of transgressive or countercultural uh, shift that that makes is um, the the farm burns down, all of your hopes and dreams of making it the American dream have potentially been shattered. What do you do? You reimagine your relationship to the land, um, and that is a deeply Christian thing. Right and to name it as such uh, is is I just thought a really beautiful thing, even though it's still it's not like closed and tight and nice little bow, um, and I think that's where uh, Nomadland in particular kind of left me going like ooh, I wish there was something like that that I could put hang on and again, but if the filmmaker wanted me to walk away, it was successful. <laughs> yeah, yep. on the Nomadland. One
1: of the themes I, that I or one of the interesting things that I Saw between this Oscar season and last one is last one the films were all over the place. You had like Ford versus Ferrari, and then oh, Once yeah, upon a time in Hollywood in 19. Yeah. There were so many films, and when you watched uh, Parasite, it was so obviously clear why it won because it, it was just an amazing film. Yeah. And even though there was a ton of other great films, it was so clear. This Oscar season, it felt like Besides Mank, because that was the film that I hope doesn't win. um, (laughs) I didn't didn't really like it that much. But besides that one, every film felt like it was touching on the same kind of theme uh, of kind of this insider outsider or or showcasing an uh, alternative community. So it's very clear, obviously, in Nomadland, but um, in The Sound of Metal, Uh, which is the film that most surprised me because I thought it was going to be all about metal music
2: and it turned (laughs) to
1: be about uh, the deaf community and Mm -hmm. deaf and like uh, people who struggle with addictions, Mm -hmm. talking and hanging out with deaf people and like Mm -hmm. work. It was like that. I've never known about that community. You also get The Father, which was, uh, you know, an experience of growing old and struggling Mm -hmm. to exist and, 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 and struggle with memory you know, you have that kind of perspective. You also have, uh, you know, Judas and the black Messiah, obviously, uh, with, you know, the, the story of Fred Hampton and the black Panthers and just a different, you know, alternate community. And, and I, I, I was just wondering what you thought about that.
3: Yeah. I, I mean, I think you're onto something. Um, it's, it just descriptively true, right. That, the, that, you've got these, uh, various different, uh, communities, like specific communities, identifiable communities. Um, and then, sort of um introducing the you know the mass audience to those and um it's to me a a really great opportunity or, or it demonstrates to me one of the uh, great opportunities that film and maybe this is going back to the very one of the very first question like why film why would why would christians engage film and 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 this would go to any sort of like great storytelling is that um, at their best uh, i think art traffics in empathy and that that both requires the piece of art to generate some kind of emotional response from the viewer, but then also if it does its job, it, it draws you into sort of an empathetic resonance with whomever is on the screen. Um, and when that whomever is on the screen is a, a person from a, a, a community that maybe you just have never interacted with, have no familiarity with, um, may in some cases be a community that you think you know and you actually have some sort of antipathy toward. Right? Um, it it humanizes people in ways that that leave you <laughs> with no other choice really but to empathize. Um, I have I don't know where he got it. I think it's even like a pastor of mine or something that uh, said. And I, the turn of phrase surprised me because I thought it was going to go somewhere. But maybe this is a famous saying. But um, if if you knew everything about anyone you know everything that ever happened to any other person in this world you would have no other choice but to love them and and what film does is go okay you think you know you know some yeah i, I don't know a, a extreme story of someone that you just have othered right totally othered and uh, sort of stereotyped them as you know all of these kind of people equal bad right um well all of those people have stories of how they got there right um even a avenge seeking or woman that goes on the prowl at night to like seek vengeance for something like that. She has a story that humanizes her, whatever you make of her pursuit of justice um, and draws you into that sort of uh, a kind of empathetic uh, posture. And then from there, the question is, and this is always my then question mark with film. Okay. Now having gone through this, um, <laughs> Oh, for the philosophers in the world, we can talk about uh, Ricoeur's uh, uh, sort of three acts of the of the narrative. After you've gone through this sort of the world that you've inhabited that the story gives us, it sort of spits you out into this world in front of the text um, or the movie in this case. And what I love about Ricoeur is he says um, the appropriated world in front of the text, it gives you the option to inhabit that world mm. and you can choose otherwise, right? So for the Christian, any film goer, but specifically for those who are people of faith, it's a missed opportunity if we walk through that that process of empathy, walk out the other side, and just go, "All right, <laughs> I've paid my empathy dues. Um, I know what it's like to to grow up uh, the you know the son of Korean immigrants." Good job. If it doesn't if it doesn't prompt you to action, then I still think the art is kind of just stillborn, right? It, it just sits mm. there. And so that's in my mind. There's a kind of ethic of, of, of viewership, uh, an ethic of reception that we can bring to these to go, when, it, when, it, when we see all these Oscar films doing this, now what's my response? Now now, what is my calling to these other communities um, that I perhaps didn't know before I walked into the cinema?
2: Yeah, that's a great point. And um, just to follow up, two films in particular that, that I think really heightened this idea of subjective empathy is one, The Father. Mm-hmm. and And to, the sound of metal mm-hmm. uh, sound of metal first when with just the the scene where his ears start to ring and you st- he starts it, that scene is frightening, like honestly like you experience what that might be like if you were in his situation and the the voice would start to mm-hmm. like, that was honestly amazing and it's a it's a real testament to what film maybe only film uniquely can do is give you not just a sense of empathy but really a you know, to be in their shoes. Um, that was the reason why The Father uh, as a film was so hard to watch. It was mm. just so incredibly disorienting. Um, and even the storytelling itself never let you feel the ground beneath your feet, mm. precisely because they're letting you sort of experience the world through the eyes of one's uh, sense of self, one's sense of memory is starting to, to fall by the wayside. And um, just truly powerful examples of what, what film can do.
1: Yeah. I don't know if you noticed in, in the father, but uh, you know, the lamps keep switching the yeah, chair. It's crazy. It, it just, it just very quick. Is just, Oh, there's a couch. And then the next scene, there's like, there's not a couch and there's chairs. And did I just, and, and you, you, you question your own viewing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and 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 I love that when the when the art uh, you know imitates life you know and uh, same thing with Sound of Metal is there there is just that I think the most heartbreaking part of that film was was when you know he gets all the money he gets the surgery you know mm-hmm. there's, it's very quiet in that part of the film but then they turn it on and and it just is like it's not it's this rubbish thing.
3: oh yeah and it's and obvious and yeah and it's just like Man. You know, interesting historical point that I've always found fascinating. Um, some of my early research was on, uh, m- on music and film, um, but then also uh, sound design. And so I'm always really interested in sound design. And that's the strength of, of sound of metal, yeah. what you're both describing. And um, it actually wasn't until uh, Dolby Digital was created, this technology, the sound technology, that you could actually bring the register down to absolute zero. There was always in sort of analog sound. There's always some sort of white noise, and so that last scene—that's that's profound, right? This moment. Yeah. Uh, I mean, <laughs> they literally say in the movie, "The kingdom of God, right?" Is is here? It is, right, right. And it's it's absolute silence. It's and and you, as a viewer um, who hasn't inhabited an absolute silent reality, um, it actually is only made possible by the technology of the sound of film, hmm. um, that we can get to that point. So uh, even that I find really interesting of how uh, sort of technological advance helps the storytelling, helps that that empathy, helps us inhabit those spaces, um, whether it's the sort of visual disorientation or all those sound cues, um, just really, and I, I think that's probably why um, Sound of Metal, again, a, a very small film about a very particular uh, character that is up for best picture.
1: Yeah, and back to, you know, John's uh, kind of original point about uh, content, you know, reducing films to just content and, you know, what is about, you know, how many cuss words are in there, I think really fails to capture that how a film is, is constructed, how a film, how a story is told is part of the, you know, the magic of movies is that, you know, things like the father, like, how do you how do you articulate to someone? Oh, yeah, but every scene The the lamp is different, and that's going to freak you out. (laughs) You can't do that in a book. You can't do that in other pieces Mm -hmm. of art, Mm -hmm. you know. And I think that is what is so great about film is that you're able to capture. You're you're able to do homages to set up these expectations. You know, like we talked about in Promising Young Woman, or you know, even the way that the trial of the Chicago Seven is told. Is that you know, I'd expect if you were of a certain generation you obviously have preconceived notions about who the bad guys are in that trial and who the good guys are. Uh, and, you know, and so, but one of the things that's interesting is that empathy, that,
2: uh, what'd you call the subjective empathy? Is that what you use it, Chris? Yeah. I mean, whatever way of just being in that person's shoes, like literally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and it's that moment
1: when uh, Sasha Baron Cohen's character realizes that no you were you missed out the word you always miss out you know yeah. you, you you didn't yeah. say our right. you meant to say it was our blood in the streets not the not the the cop's blood and that yeah. is like he understands and that's like a turning point in the film and so sure sure but you don't but if you just started out with that you know that that wouldn't have made the
2: film that wouldn't have captured the drama of the film yeah all right so uh the the second to last question that we've got here is uh is there a film that you liked that didn't 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 make the nominees list is there a picture that you would add
3: to best picture cutter Yeah that is a good question I it's such a um a kind of odd <laughs> year um yeah. you know I uh there I feel like there's some maybe some docs uh or I, I'm not sure if there's anything that rises to the level where I'd go, it's a it's a clear, better choice sure. than than what we've got here. Um, I will say, um, and I think it's actually up for uh animated film, um, but Wolfwalker is a really interesting um Wolfwalkers, I think. Um, and I want to check to see if it's actually up, but I would potentially move it into um, the live action, uh, best pictures. And it's basically a kind of uh, a myth, uh, sort of an Irish folklore kind of a a myth similar to to song of the sea. I don't know if anyone saw that. Um, Mm. but it's a hand-drawn animation, um, and watched it with my kids. Uh, and it was, you know, both, frightening in the way that a, a, a myth should be, but uh, also really compelling. So wow. I tend to like uh, animated films, uh, but uh, that I think would be one that I would say would be a worthy nomination, even though, as we all know, no animated film has ever won Best Picture. So mm. uh, unlikely choice for the top.
2: Um, mm. Curious, did you, uh, not, Tenet wasn't going to make the Best Picture mm. list,
3: but did you see it and did you like it? I did. I did. It is the only movie I saw in a theater this year oh is that right um yeah so i am an unabashed and uncritical endorser of all things christopher nolan so (laughs) i I start with it's going it's amazing and then maybe i'll hear arguments otherwise um it i need to see it again uh number one so i've only seen it the once uh and i i loved all sorts of things about it um and and I didn't have the same audio problems that a lot of others said that they did. So I don't know if they fixed it. Like there was a lot of people talking about how the the dialogue was all garbled. I thought that was on purpose.
2: I I, I mean, like maybe I'm hearing, maybe I'm reading different sources, but I thought that that was intentional. That um that it was created like that.
3: Yeah, I, I think that's right. And um just the way he mixes stuff uh, it, it leans that direction. But I didn't. It wasn't like a problem for me in, in yeah. watching it. Um, but I just thought it's it's creative. It's interesting. It's it's everything that you want in a going to the movie theater on a 90 foot big screen is um, including the sounds. Uh, so for all of those things, I give it a, a plus. But again, I I think I mean, to your point about film form, I mean, like Memento gives you that sense of of short term memory loss. That, yes. Like yes. how else do you feel that? Right. That sort of dissonance. So um, anyway, so, yeah, I I loved it. I I would have named that as the uh, uh, best picture, but I actually don't think—I don't think it's a classic sort of best picture award category.
2: I don't think so either. But you know, I've seen it—I've seen it several times now. Oh, nice. does um, I it, like it, does it. Hold
3: up on repeat viewings. It gets better in oh, my good, mind. Good. It
2: gets better the more that I see it, and I mean, I think it, it needs just the way that it's told. It needs to be watched twice, and it's, it's one yeah. of those things where you keep certain things in mind, and
3: yeah. Maybe that's what we should do for the next podcast. We all go watch it at least three more times and then break it
1: down. (laughs) I just love that. You know that somebody in R&D or whatever was like, I feel like this is really complicated. And he's like, would it really, you know, Mm -hmm. Christopher Nolan's like, would it help if I put colors on it? And they're like, yes, that would be great. (laughs) Red and blue. That'd be so
2: helpful. (laughs) Well,
3: it is the interesting thing about visual storytelling of the kind of things you you have to think through. I mean, even back to, um, inception, right? Like the different level to make sure it cohered that we could track with stuff very clearly different land. So you have a very, like the, 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 the white, the white out sort of snow area is very different than the other levels. Otherwise you'd get lost. And so you have to think through visually, how are you tracking? Um, and I think that's visually he's, uh, he's top flight. I'm, and then of course, um, now some people accuse him of being a, he, lacking heart like he doesn't generate the kind of empathy in the characters that uh others do but i just find it so stimulating that they're they're super fun to watch my uh you know shameless plug the uh concluding chapter of uh one i think my most recent book technically uh called deep focus i co-authored it with a couple of colleagues um so i wrote the chapter on christopher nolan and it's a uh, breakdown of all of his films uh-huh. um and i basically this connects to our, our larger conversation today um i categorize him as a a post-traumatic filmmaker hmm. um and and i think all of his films and it continues to be this way are about characters who basically are responding to trauma either their own personal or societal uh and he sort of Uh, mapping out these different responses to what happens when you are trying to grapple with those and most of the time in not really life-giving ways Um, but uh, that's part of why I find him so compelling
0: yeah when you when you think across Christopher Nolan's films you can you can definitely see that but but to the point that uh, his films lack heart I think that's kind of an interesting comment because I find Interstellar to be full of uh, quite a bit of heart I I mean, I had a a very profound uh, emotional experience watching that film, actually. Well, how about as a as a final question, uh, what do you think is the best picture of 2021?
3: Again, this is I'm biased, but uh, I would like to see uh, Minari win for the hearts question, for the the oddity of this year reason. I mean, for all of those things, Um, I think it's a. Mm, it is a toss-up between, I'm, I'm pretty sure Nomadland is going to win. I, I, would, I would be surprised if it didn't, um, for all the reasons we've named. Um, it definitely captures something about the current moment. Um, Incredible, I mean, beautiful cinematography, mm-hmm. uh, really, really engaging, great acting. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, just all around, really, really well done. Um, so it's, it's going to be hard for someone to beat that one, I think.
0: Well, thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Calloway. It's been a blast to be able to nerd out about film for a bit and think uh, think about these Best Picture nominees at a at a deep level and 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 make some connections uh, across them as as well. So it's just been a blast. Thanks so much for joining us.
3: Yeah, thanks. It was uh, super fun and uh, glad to be on.